when you go to the point where it's the Ayatollah Khomeini, uh, it's uh, Hamas, it's some folks at CUNY who were supposed to be the teachers, uh, you know, it's the uh, globalization of the boycott movement, it's Ben and Jerry's, except you, everywhere you see it, the message is it's open season, if you will, in terms of hatred of Jews. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Rabbi Abraham Cooper is the Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center. It's a leading global Jewish human rights organization based in Los Angeles. He was recently appointed Vice Chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which tracks violations of religious freedom around the globe. He is here to tell us about his latest work and the rise in hate crimes and anti-Semitism in this age of social media. Rabbi Cooper travels the globe in his campaigns, meets with world leaders and individuals, and has an unusual ability to communicate on very distressing topics. His recollection of how the late Simon Wiesenthal once responded to a question about the Holocaust is both haunting and striking. Simon Wiesenthal, of course, was a Holocaust survivor himself. So what the young person asked back then was, Mr. Wiesenthal, could it happen again? And his answer uh, still resonates with me pretty much every day. And he said this in 1980. He said the following, when you have a crisis in society, uh, when you have hate. And when you have technology, anything is possible. The reason I emphasize the last one is that's like two decades before anyone even thought of the internet. We'll have my full interview with Rabbi Abraham Cooper in a wee moment. First, it's time for our weekly Future Shock 2.0 segment with Ira Wolf with a new twist on the continuing saga of the Great Resignation. Ira Wolf, Gen X has been driving the great resignation according to some reports, but you have a better feel on this. What is driving the great resignation in your view? Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah, again, uh, we'll we'll go back to the age old, uh, let's blame the millennials, or in this case, let's blame Gen Z. And for the first uh, part of the post-pandemic era, the, the first year, uh, Gen Z and millennials were doing most of the quitting that, you know, what's been termed, well, beyond quiet quitting, they were full quitting. They were just quitting jobs at a, at a really high rate. Um, but when you look at the data for uh, beginning in 2022, the highest rates of, of people who changed jobs and quit was Gen X. Uh, and just to put this in perspective, Gen X, uh, according to uh, most people, uh, is born between 1965 and 1980 which makes them about uh, in their mid 40s to 57 years old. So Gen X aren't kids anymore. And it's, it's, I, think, I think it's pretty ironic and, and maybe funny to some degree that the, the people who are complaining about the millennials are the people that are doing the quitting. Uh, <laughs> that's driving it. Uh, now, something also very interesting was, was that they felt that it was driven. This is just coincidence that a lot of the changeover is driven by midlife crisis. Uh, and which is a real thing. And they've they've done a lot of studies and they found that uh, at 
somewhere between 40 and 50 years old, roughly, you know, the average about 45, um, our stress levels, our work related stress levels max out. And what's changed now is I think in the past, baby boomers just hung on for another 10 years and took early retirement at 55. And that's almost a thing of the past. So again, a lot of people uh, changing times, a lot of people just may be completely frustrated. They put up with a job for the last 20, 25, 30 years, and now they've reached their breaking point and it's now okay to not stay with the same company for a lifetime or even stay in the same industry for a lifetime. And they just bolt. Um, and so I think just time kept up and and but baby boomers and Gen X are certainly jumping on board and baby boomers stayed in the workforce so long that they had a midlife crisis. And now they're having a, a 60s crisis uh, <laughs> in their 60s and they're moving on to different things. So a lot of a lot of different things going on. But I guess my advice to everybody is just stop blaming the millennials and Gen Z for quitting their jobs because because everyone else is doing it at a higher rate than they are. That was Ira Wolf of the Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization podcasts. He's a workforce trends expert, an author, and a top international leader in the field of workforce and labor trends. More from Ira Wolf in our next episode. Tune into Audion Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Audion Capital Group. And yours truly. On our latest episode, we'll take a look at the mounting signs of a global recession at US and international debt levels, rising interest rates, inflation, and much more. It's all on Odeon Capital Conversations on Apple, Spotify, Google, and more. And Odeon Capital Conversations is a top rated Apple podcast. I'm your host, John. Aiden Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. My guest is Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center. It's a leading global Jewish human rights organization based in Los Angeles. He was recently appointed vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which tracks violations of religious freedom around the world. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. Rabbi Cooper, welcome to my show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to open up with this quote, something you've said recently, and I will ask you to take us through it. America was known for fighting hate crimes and anti-Semitism. Your words, that's a lost art. Everything is now politicized and it's more difficult for the good guys and the good guys presumably includes uh, your group at the Simon Wiesenthal Center and at the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. You were recently appointed co-chair. Congratulations, by the way. Take us through that quote, packs a great punch. Yes. Well, um, first and foremost, for full disclosure, I'm a native of uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I've been out on the left coast for four and a half decades. I'm still a Mets fan. I learned how to swim in the Atlantic Ocean. Okay. Uh, uh, my uh, 
Well, the Mets aren't doing so bad this yeah, season. Yeah, like yeah, t- right. No false dawns. <laughs> and and also, I remember since my parent, my late father, was a teacher, we couldn't afford to go to the mountains during summertime and spent the summers in Rockaway, Queens, uh, you know, playing softball with uh, the Irish. I think the love of life uh, that um, these disparate groups had, it was interesting. Many Holocaust survivors and their families folks also like us and with working class Irish, uh, those were very interesting times. I think our communities were still getting used to each other, but there were really some wonderful memories and some great people uh, that, uh, that I will always cherish. You know, and insofar as the quote that you started with, uh, I grew up in New York. Uh, I think my main education came uh, 50 years ago uh, this September. When I spent four weeks in the Soviet Union, I, I grew up what was then the Soviet Jewry movement. We had three million Jews trapped in the communist system, and uh, no one thought there would ever be a positive resolution to it. So I actually spent four weeks in six cities, meeting basically secretly with Jewish refuseniks, but also getting an education about the uniqueness of what America stands for. Because in the Soviet Union, any individuality, whatever your religion or was or wasn't, was crushed by the system. And so all the things that growing up as a New Yorker, I took for granted. I had a four-week uh, crash course of what it means to be you're in good hands with Allstate. And we'll always cherish the fact that in the struggle for uh, to try to save those Jews in the Soviet Union, we had many, many allies and friends people who were not Jewish and in the United States. Again, I was just a college student uh, back then, but watching what was going on in the United States Congress, uh, you know, in the UK, uh, in France, in in, uh, Canada, um, there was a sense that when it came to fundamental core human rights, uh, that superseded political affiliation. The people were ready to use their elected positions uh, from from their constituents in order to speak to the greater good. I watched that. I witnessed it. I celebrated it. Uh, and um, it's something that eroded in the United States of America over the course of decades. This is not one president or one party, uh, you know, in terms of where, where, where we're at today. But unfortunately, the reality when we talk about even the issue, let's call it anti-Semitism, you know, we're operating and fighting against various swamps. You have neo-Nazi and white supremacists. You have the left-wing squad uh, in the United States Congress uh, and all they represent. Uh, even with the Abraham Accords, uh, Jews and and uh, and Arabs finding ways to live in harmony with each other and and grow together. But you still have the Islamists. You have the you have Iran. Uh, and uh, and you have people who are on the streets, even in New York City and L.A., you know, calling for the demise of uh, of the Jewish state. So we've got so many different front lines to this war, and yet, you, whenever you see these days a statement or an effort, uh, you see even that term politicized, meaning someone who's uh, a conservative only wants to point in the direction of the squad. And the squad members come through pretty regularly. It's easy if you're on the right to point to the left and vice versa. 
One of the things that Natan Sharansky, right, he was originally a refusenik over the decades, a great human rights icon. Uh, what he once said, and, and I absolutely agree with him, it's not up for us in these organizations to tell people whether they should be liberal or progressive or conservative. That's an individual choice of, of how you want to view your life. However, if you see anti-Semitism in your camp, you have to be the first to criticize it. It's easy to point to the other, the other guy. So, and I think that could be expanded, uh, what you might call, I think, the middle ground and maybe the, the silent majority of the people in the United States because politics has been reduced to this uh, very narrow cast blood sport. And while that may make sense when you're trying to figure out a budget, it's a disaster when it comes to trying to make, to deal with issues like protecting religious freedom around the world and teaching your own kids who your role models should be going forward. Why has it become politicized? How did we get to this stage in America? Well, I mean, that's a really uh, an important question uh, uh, to, to deal with because this was, has been incremental. You know, there's not one day where things suddenly uh, change. I think part of it has to be with uh, uh, perhaps uh, politicians and political parties and political pundits, uh, you know, looking at the polls, at the numbers. I think another part of it, again, impacts on our discussion here, but also much more broadly, even before the uh, advent of the internet, television and cable news, you were invited onto a program because they wanted you to have a gotcha moment. They mm -hmm. want to take, instead of having, uh, you know, William Buckley's, uh, you know, uh, hour and a half discussion yeah. with someone to talk through an issue, you had 25 seconds to make your point. And if you made it sharp, they'd invite you back. And if not, you will put back in the bleachers. That was one thing. And then now when you come where there are no, not really no, everyone is a kind of, if you will, TV producer. Mm -hmm. uh, you're on social media, say what you want. If you say it in a more creative way, you're going to be noticed. If you say it in a more outrageous way, you're going to be noticed. And there are times when, you know, you look at sometimes third tier uh, entertainers who'd, you know, never really made it, may say something outrageous just that they can have a sharp reporter at the, uh, let's say, the New York Post, uh, write about it and have an angry rabbi, you know, give, uh, give a quote. So, uh, you know, part of it is political, part of it is social now, but now it's been, you might say, uh, it's in hyper space because everything now is really geared to social media and to the Twitter sphere. It doesn't lend itself for people to actually sit down let alone sit down and come to payment. There's nothing about the that we have today, as expanded as it is, that lends itself to serious discussion and and uh, building blocks. It's one of the reasons why I was pretty shocked, but very honored that I was uh, appointed to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. It's fascinating. Yeah. There are only eight people. Two are nominated by the President of the United States. Two by Chuck Schumer, two by McConnell, two by Nancy Pelosi, and uh, two by Kevin uh, McCarthy. And actually, our mandate 
is actually to work in a bipartisan way on behalf of the United States, you know, to monitor and try to lift the boat when it comes to religious freedom around the world. Congratulations again on that appointment, and um, you're going to have incredible insights to the whole workings of what's going on in the world of religious freedom, and I'm sure you'll have a new breadth of knowledge that we can talk about later in the months ahead. The world, America, uh, everywhere, we see these surges, periodic surges in anti-Semitism, hate crime, and Right now, in our present moment, we're seeing surges, right? Um, you just look at the appalling statistics, and they're grim. They make terrible reading attacks on synagogues, hate crimes, and anti-Semitism spewed all over uh, social media, as you alluded to there earlier. And I asked this of a previous guest, Brooke Goldstein, who's at the Lawfare Project, um, so what's your explanation for the current surge in anti-Semitism? Uh, one thing we looked at is just the whole angst, the uncertainty, the global instability, economic um, worries is fueling some of it. But there's, there's probably more going on. But what's your thoughts on that? Look, one of the things that our namesake, uh, the courageous and amazing Simon Wiesenthal, the, the late Nazi hunter, said just in a few words, where democracy is strong, it's good for the Jews. Where democracy is weak, it's bad for the Jews. Wow. Yeah, it's a great and, quote. Uh, it is, uh, you know, something that is, it is true. And you can probably just strip out the word Jews and put in pretty much any other group these days as well. Look, um, I usually, over the decades, you know, took the easy way out travel the world, Indonesia, Gulf, Arab world, et cetera, Africa. Uh, during COVID, uh, we, we were locked down in Los Angeles. I had an opportunity, actually, sort of like a, a demand to be more involved on in what was going on on the ground here. And you mentioned about the surge of, of anti-Semitism. I spent a lot of time meeting with the police uh, leadership in uh, Los Angeles with the police leadership in New York City mm -hmm. and with the folks in Chicago, as well as the FBI, who, uh, you know, we requested and still would like to see the FBI create a, you know, a special task force on anti-Semitism because it is a, such a complicated issue. Number one, COVID, the dislocation of COVID uh, that has just roiled uh society and we're not anywhere near yet getting back to normal you see the quotes from the cdc now saying we blew it that sounds like all the critics were probably 85 percent right to say that strengthens the inclination to look towards conspiracy it's extremely unsettling but in many ways you can say for some folks we'll take a look and see what's going on with, with the media. So the implications of COVID across uh, the board, the uh, defund the police movement is an absolute disaster for our community. Mm. Uh, because look, when it comes to the, to the, uh, to the Jewish community, you know, our houses of wor worship look a little bit different. If you're walking in, in Brooklyn or Queens or certain neighborhoods in LA or Chicago, we look different, so a kind of easy target as to why you're a target, uh, that's another point. But in so far, for example, here in LA, 
we feel the political leadership of our city threw the Jews under the bus. Our only lifeline was the LAPD, and they're hanging on by a thread. What that means is that, yeah, there's so much local crime you don't even hear about anymore. Among the targets, unfortunately, the easy targets uh, are members of the of the Jewish community. Uh, that's the that's second piece. The third piece is the export of Hamas rhetoric uh, into the West. Mm. I'm not talking about this latest, uh, last year's, or you can go back as, uh, even to 2011. Uh, Hamas uh, keeps getting battered by Israel when the Israelis can't take the missiles anymore. Mm-hmm. There's another round, another round. But what's less known or understood is that and now, again, especially that there's a highway called the social media to deliver it. Hamas has exported its genocidal language and hatred of Jews globally. And so for example, during the last round, during COVID, you saw uh, demonstrated protesters in uh, Germany screaming, we're going to rape your wives and daughters. Mm-hmm. The next thing you know, on a Friday afternoon, you hear it in the Jewish neighborhood in London, and a few days later, across North America as well. So the, the um, I would say, the radicalization of uh, enmity and globalization of enmity for the Jewish state and anyone who dares stand with her creates a whole different level of invective that we haven't seen uh, since the Second World War. I'll put it this way. If we said that everyone who criticized the policies was an anti-Semite, you'd have to close the Israeli Knesset mm. because you, you won't or, you know, and lock down every taxi driver you know, in, in <laughs> Tel Aviv. So this is not about criticizing policies believe me there as any democracy there they people and institutions make many mistakes but when you go to the point where you know it's the ayatollah khomeini uh it's uh, hamas it's some folks at cuny who were supposed to be the teachers uh you know it's the uh, globalization of the boycott movement it's ben and jerry's except you everywhere you see it the message is it's open season, if you will, in terms of hatred of Jews and of Jewish values and of Jewish institutions. Uh, and as a result, when you also have on the streets of many ur- urban areas around the world, less uh, people of, of responsibility were there for law and order. They're not that around. They may be good at reacting, but impossible to really cover the terrain on a daily basis. The growing sense of lawlessness uh, also contributes to the growing numbers in terms of anti-Semitic attacks. One other point for historic perspective, since the early 1990s, the FBI keep their own statistics on an annual basis. I know you've written and spoken about this before. The number one target of race-based hate crimes in the U.S. are African-Americans without fail. And the number one target for religion-based hate crimes, with the exception of the three months after 9-11, are American Jews. And we're barely 2% of the population. You know the statistics in New York. Uh, there are more, Jews are targeted more on the streets uh, in, of New York than all of the other targeted groups uh, uh, combined. Now, before COVID, 
which seems like a million years ago, uh, I met with uh, three of the top cops uh, in, in New York City. It was fascinating. I asked them, like, how do you account for this spike? This before COVID. And these, uh, you know, if you get that high in NYPD, uh, you're, you're talking about maybe one and a half Irishmen, <laughs> uh, an Italian or two. Right. Um, people I felt comfortable with because I thought one or two may have been older than me. <laughs> but but they said they said uh instantaneously social media social They're, media and again it's not only anti-semitism you want to talk about bullying how many parents know that you can do like say facebook uh yeah. with you know without you know with a password that nobody else could see look i grew up as a fat little kid in brooklyn new york okay i got ragged for my uh, obesity child obesity i think they call it now um, incessantly, but I knew one thing came Friday afternoon. I had the weekend off. They were, no one's going to attack. There's no such thing anymore because mm. of the deliverability kids gang up on other kids for different reasons. Now they have this amazingly powerful tool, which unfortunately can be applied. So it's not the technology. In fact, I think there's nothing new in hate, but the delivery mm. systems and the Think of what I approach, you know, the whole internet phenomenon is not so, it's not a matter of speech. It's a matter of marketing. This is the, the most powerful marketing tool um, ever created. So uh, that is a huge uh, a challenge. It's a huge challenge for parents, uh, meaning that even if quote unquote with your kids, but they now have literally the entire world. Uh, without necessarily any filter being present. Uh, there's just a lot coming at them that uh, young people should not necessarily be exposed to, uh, uh, or if they are not really having any uh, training or person they can go to and say, is this real? Doesn't seem right, but, you know, my friends are doing whatever. So take all of the social, social norms that we grew up with and then grid over new world and that here we are the cyber bullying as they call it and of course your groups and um your center uses social media to to push back on that and, and does an effective job i must add brooke goldstein brought this up and i'm sure you share the same sentiment that a lot of this also this anti-semitism and hate crimes a lot of it starts in the hallowed halls of academia among the professors and you mentioned cooney had its own issues and you have right. um you brought that up just earlier right so we have uh i would say two uh, firewalls let's when i was growing up many many moons ago first there is the united nations they all it, it's bad the foundations are fantastic and if you have a, a pro a global problem you bring it to the to the global desk well that's been completely corrupted they went uh, from being part of the solution long time ago to being part of the problem. I was the spokesman for the Jewish groups 21 years ago in Durban, South Africa, at the United Nations World Conference Against Racism, which turned out to be a one-week gangbang <laughs> against the Jewish people and the uh, birthing of this uh, monster called Israel Apartheid. What better place to do it? than uh, in South Africa. So when we see um, uh, non-governmental organizations, so you say NGOs, 
uh, who, uh, whose history is in the field of fighting for human rights, turning, instead of defending you, turning on the Jewish people, that's devastating. In parallel, there are two other, if you will, uh, uh, areas, academia. When you then add in uh, academia, where young people are, um, you know, are taught to or supposedly, you know, have that opportunity for a couple of years, not only to party, but also to, you know, to begin to reflect on the bigger issues in life. There's a kind of, if you will, Stalinism that's in place. Don't you dare, uh, you know, put into your paper a defense of Israel or uh, an attack on Hamas. And it's not just in, in selected uh, uh, classes. It also means it's a silencing of academics who uh, themselves may be pro-Israel. So there's a kind of uh, orthodoxy that has set in. And one last area has to do with some of the churches, like uh, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, and, and the attempt uh, by certain Palestinian leaders uh, to again tie to say to Christians who support Israel, you're guilty of a sin, saying, well, you know that Jesus was a Palestinian, et cetera, et cetera. So all of the areas that you would normally turn to, to in a sense, to your neighbors in the world for defense, diplomacy, academia, church groups, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is uh, uh, either apathetic, neutral, or in the other camp. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why we so ferociously uh, attacked uh, Ben and Jerry's, because uh, Ben and Jerry's was, in a sense, a could be a prelude uh, to seeing this also infecting uh, corporations. And in case anyone thinks, you know, you're, this rabbi is just like, what's he talking about? Take a look and see what American corporations, how many hundreds of millions of dollars they forked over to Black Lives Matter when it just seemed that that's the direction society was going on. No one wanted to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, had a finger, finger pointed at them and just tons of cash flowing out the door, uh, you know, kind of like protection money. Uh, if, if we allow all of these areas of life to be infected, it's going to, as Simon Wiesenthal said, the democracy is strong, it's good. When it weakens, watch out. Which makes you wonder, American democracy is not as strong as it was, so might explain also what's going on. Remind us about Ben and Jerry's, and you also um, had a campaign against Twitter several years ago, and maybe that's ongoing. Yeah, I, I think, um, let me just do quickly on Ben and Jerry's. Twitter will take us into, uh, I think, a broader conversation on, on the internet giants. Um, so there's a phenomenal ice cream. Maybe I grew up with a bungalow bar and good humor, but Ben and Jerry's is a multi-billion dollar global enterprise. It's a run out of Vermont. Apparently it was started by a couple of hippies decades ago. But the uniqueness of Ben and Jerry's is that they turned over the uh, to a special board uh, their profits in order to plow those profits back into social issues. Unfortunately, the people they gave the keys to are uh, anti-American and uh, anti-Israel, 
And uh, even though uh, Ben and Jerry's uh, uh, is sold on the streets of uh, Jerusalem and Janine and Tel Aviv, etc., people who had that clout tried to call for a full boycott of Israel for its etc., etc., etc. And um, in the end, they pulled back a little bit and said, no, it's just occupied uh, Jerusalem and, uh, and on the on the West Bank. In other words, um, we're, we, we're seeing blatantly, openly, uh, uh, Americans being told, buy our ice cream, we're going to use those profits to then pursue a certain political uh, game plan. It, there was nothing hidden about it. Uh, that simply uh, was unacceptable. And when Ben & Jerry's was bought by Unilever, one of the world's mega companies, uh, we took it to them. They're based in, in London. Many, many groups uh, and individuals, there were lawsuits, uh, there were uh, boycotts, there were campaigns. Uh, in the end, uh, Unilever did a very smart thing. Uh, first and foremost is they separated Ben & Jerry's in Israel and let the guy who's been selling it for decades. And by the way, the staff and the consumers and, and the cups, they're in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. Okay. okay. It's ice cream, for God's sakes, right? <laughs> so they took it. They took that away from, from them. And then Ben and Jerry sued them and sort of doubled down saying, well, we're still going to take our props to do. So they froze the money that's going to these uh, anti-peace and anti-American activists. I think, uh, you know, I think for now it's the best we could have done, but we know that a lot of other companies were watching very, very closely. I mean, the bottom line is that if Ben and Jerry's in the United States wants to say that they're going to take their profits and plow it back into uh, international controversies, that's their right. But I think you'll find a lot of Americans going out and, and adding to their uh, caloric uh, intake from, you know, 10 or 15 other really good brands. So that is nonetheless, as you see from the point of view of the Jewish community, um, there isn't any uh, area of uh, communal life that the, that this issue uh, doesn't spill over. And why is it anti-Semitic? Because it's a double standard. As far as I know, there's no such campaign by that company or any other country when it comes to China and the Uyghurs you know, et cetera. It's only about the Jewish state. When you have that double standard in 2022, that's one of the tripwires of anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, moving on to uh, Twitter, uh, it, is, it, it is sickening, actually. They still allow uh, their powerful platform to be used by the Ayatollah Khomeini. This is Twitter. Uh, yes. And, and, it, and their, uh, their thuggish regime which is openly not making a secret of trying to go out and assassinate the top former uh, diplomatic and governmental officials of the United States. You know, you have in, uh, in New York, of course, you have the Iranian uh, uh, activist, a woman whose crime is that she's, you know, wants for people, women to allow to take off the hijab. And uh, they ca caught some guy with an AK-47 yeah. in Brooklyn and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Salman Rushdie. Uh, it, it's a nonstop thing. All of these things that take place individually should have been enough 
to say, you know what, when it comes to that regime, what they're doing to their people, crushing human dignity in their own place, uh, you know, torturing and killing the Baha'i, throwing gays off uh, the rooftops of, of apartment building. We don't want them. You know, yes, they generate a lot of the numbers. They don't believe. So you've been lobbying and meeting with Silicon Valley executives. In all of these discussions, starting with Facebook and Twitter and Google and, and all the rest, over the years, uh, victory, some progress, uh, come up with a standard effort they should be putting into uh, dealing with bigotry is now front and center, even as we speak, in the political domain, you know, political speech and censoring discussion about COVID, et cetera, et cetera. In a sense, for where I sit, they took the easy way out, one that actually lands up weakening uh, our democracy uh, and, and landing up, unfortunately, powering some of the worst players on the planet. Twitter uh, has been um, a challenge, but you've made some progress on that. And can you just describe some of it? Jack Dorsey, we met very early and, and they, uh, we have an annual grade. We have a report card for all the companies. One of their lawyers asks, well, you know, we noticed he gave us a failing grade, gave us an F. You at, think at it Twitter. might be yeah. at Twitter. You think it might be different next year? And I said, well, perhaps uh, the initial mindset of Twitter during the height of ISIS's in the Middle East. They said ISIS was releasing on average two hundred thousand tweets a day. Wow. That had to be a bit too much and changed a little bit. Later on, Dorsey was threatened on Twitter. Dorsey was threatened, yes. Changes. They took off millions, literally millions of the stuff. They made an effort, and we hoped that things were going in the right direction. And then the whole, and then you have companies like Telegram uh, and Gab and others that don't even pretend that they're really interested uh, in this issue. The overall result is that social media uh, is, is a place where extremists of all ilk uh, can come and play and recruit and celebrate, you know, the, the attacks on uh, the synagogues yeah. uh, in, in Pittsburgh, uh, the, the attack, the uh, failed attack on Yom Kippur in Germany. The mass murder of Muslims at prayer down in in uh, in New, uh, New Zealand. In each case, the the perpetrators were wearing cameras on helmets, and in their uh, in, in their iconology, which they're in their recruitment, they make these people out to be saints. But the real message is that they understand the power of social media. And this is something also that we should also understand. Everything local is now global, and everything global is now local. It's a huge headache for law enforcement, for intelligence, frankly, for parents. But that is the reality you know, that, uh, that we're uh, in. Um, after the, in the two mosques, with I think 51 people who were murdered at prayer, I had a call from a senior official from Facebook the following Monday, and he said, uh, Rabbi Cooper, I just want you to know that for the weekend, we were able to remove, you ready? Yeah. 1.5 million 
Oh, my gosh. To those murders on Facebook. Give me that one, number again. They were able to remove 1.5 million links to the streaming of the mass murders that took place in the mosques. Oh, my gosh. Facebook. And what I said to this individual was, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were calling for another reason. I thought you were going to lead in an emergency meeting with all of the other companies to stop live streaming. No, no network in the world goes live. There's always a, a delay. And with yeah. artificial intelligence and the genius, collective genius, if they really wanted to choke this off, uh, they could. And yet, you know, there's sort of like uh, it started, as you know, with the murder of a French policeman broadcast live on Facebook years ago. And now the technology is baked into the uh, the uh, uh, worldview uh, and the command and control first activities all over the world. Now you can't totally stop it, but a lot could be done if we had some moral leadership uh, from these companies. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure, um, we'll probably stay together. Probably. It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. My guest is Rabbi Abraham Cooper, Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center It's a leading global Jewish human rights organization based in Los Angeles. He was recently appointed vice chair of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, which tracks violations of religious freedom around the world. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. These um, extremist groups and crazed individuals can live stream they're, they're desperate acts. There's, so there's no legislation. There's no lawmaker speaking out. Why is it so difficult to change all that? Because there's a lot of pressure coming on the social media from groups like you and many others and ordinary individuals and families. It just seems perplexing and just extraordinary that nothing can change that. The truth is, there are. It, this is a complex issue. I don't know about any other group, but the Simon Wiesenthal Center does not want to be the thought police for society. We don't want to be the censors. We're actually looking to the companies to live up to their part of the social contract. Uh, Number two, these are extremely powerful companies who spend a fortune in uh, whether we are talking about Buenos Aires, where we've spoken uh, and testified. Washington, Ottawa, uh, they they uh, cover their their bases with um, with the third part that makes it difficult is 
that elected officials, and it's not just Congress, they're easy to rag on, but most elected officials don't really have a grasp of even how the technologies work. Yeah. So when you're up against these companies uh, and they say, well, we're trying A, B, C, D, and F, and we're, we have this number of people doing so-and-so, um, the th- letter that the uh, internet giants are worried about is the R, regulation. Yeah. Anything that would impact an uh, ATM machine, uh, you know, gets them nervous. So um, I think Congress should be doing more. Parents should be doing more. Also, we're now, um, with the help of, believe it or not, the New York City Council, training 15,000 kids in middle and senior high schools in the New York City school system, because we, in a sense, collectively, we don't have a choice. It shouldn't be up to kids to be the arbiters. And that's what parents, teachers, et cetera, have to be committed to, to help our kids. I think what frustrates a lot of consumers, ordinary users of social media is that when there is an issue out there, there's something offensive in their view on Facebook or Twitter. The only recourse they have is maybe send um, some kind of a, an email, and it's not even an email portal, but it's it really impossible to reach anybody at social media. Now, you may have better, you probably have much better access to the corporate social media folks, but the average individual doesn't. So right. it's a problem. It, it is a problem. I call it the Wizard of Oz effect. Hmm. Uh, you know, you're something happens, uh, your kid actually comes to you, you see what it is, and you want to talk to a human being at the other end. And it's like trying to communicate with the Wizard of Oz behind uh, behind the uh, the curtain. Yeah. Um, look, we're, we do have uh, access, uh, and people could, you know, uh, contact us at, uh, you know, we, uh, information at Wiesenthal.com. Uh, um, but I do say the following, it is important for uh, when you see something to protest. At the end of the day, you are a consumer. One way or the other, these issues are going to have to be dealt with. We hope if the only place we can come to to get any sort of relief is going to be Congress, no one's going to like the solution. Uh, if we're looking, what we really need, even though we're in new technologies, is we need old-fashioned values. Everybody is uh, there in the uh, in the new marketplace, an expanded marketplace, that you have to treat everyone with respect. And if you don't, there should be a price to pay. That's another issue we haven't talked about. You know, in the real world with real crimes, you know, they catch if they do catch the criminal, no bail, out the door. We've got huge societal problems. But I, I also uh, you know, would like to share um, uh, an answer that Simon Wiesenthal gave to a, a college student back in 1980, because I think it's completely relevant today. And he was at, this is a man who together with his wife lost 89 members of their family uh, murdered by the Nazis. He barely, he was, uh, Mr. Wiesenthal was uh, liberated by U.S. Uh, soldiers in Mauthausen concentration camp in May 45, another week he would have been dead of uh, hunger. He weighed about 90 pounds. He wasn't strong enough to stand on it. It, He was an architect before the war, but he became the ambassador of 6 million ghosts. 
Yeah. He, he became the unelected, you know, uh, if you will, uh, official. He's the man who never really left the Holocaust. Uh, Elie Wiesel was the great wordsmith. Elie Wies, uh, and Simon Wiesenthal was the man who, who, who never left there. So what the young person asked back then was, Mr. Wiesenthal, could it happen again? And his answer uh, still resonates with me pretty much every day. And he said this in 1980. He said the following. When you have a crisis in society, uh, when you have hate, and when you have technology, anything is possible. The reason I emphasize the last one is that's like two decades before anyone even thought of the internet. So what Simon Wiesenthal was referring back to was the technology of the Nazis, the whole thing of propaganda, of showing films and, and, and the books yep. that kids read, et cetera, et cetera. And he said the following, if the technology that the Germans had during World War II is available in 1492, no Jew would have survived it. No Catholic would have survived in England. And no Protestant would have survived in France. Yeah. And, you know, I, I those are, uh, and of course, tragically, uh, we talk about you know, what's happened uh, since World War II, there uh, have uh, taken place. And one of the things that we sometimes forget about, we talk about like education, and it's important to learn about the past. Here's something that uh, I learned from Simon Wiesenthal, when Saddam Hussein gassed the Kurds, his own people, uh, back in, uh, in the 80s, 1980s. And very few people spoke out. Obviously, he did. Uh, and he said, you the world's making a mistake because it's not just good people who are learning lessons. The evildoers are also looking. And when mm -hmm. you see that Saddam Hussein was able to use poison gas on 5,000 of his own citizens, fellow Muslims, and essentially no world reaction, he said, watch out because people like Saddam Hussein will take that as a signal that they can go much further. So imagine the kind of, uh, Saddam Hussein did that, if there had been a coalition of the willing right there to put a stop to it. Well, obviously it didn't happen and we have the messes that we have here. Uh, the, I don't well, you mentioned, speak. it's interesting to uh, your analysis on what you repeated there from World War II. Of course, uh, the, the Nazis were famous for giving out their cheap wireless sets, apparently. That they they, they give out radio, radio sets. Right, between Goebbels and Hitler's speeches and the mass rallies, they, they literally created the modern concepts of, uh, of propaganda, and the effectiveness was, uh, was, was devastating. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there, there are games. You can look back at history. You can read a Mein Kampf in order to learn uh, what evil is. Uh, or you can read a Mein Kampf to figure out, oh, here's an organized approach to the issues. And when you'll visit the Museum of Tolerance here in Los Angeles, and I suggest maybe you wait to the first really bad the snowstorm wherever you, you live, <laughs> the most important document we have here is a 1919 report that Hitler typed and signed. That Adolf Hitler typed and signed. Typed and signed this letter said, what do you mean, typed? A typewriter in 1919 would have been like an, an early uh, computer, massively yeah. expensive. Advanced technology. Turns out 
Right. Turns out he was still in the German military after they had lost and was reassigned where he was going to be released. And everybody in that unit was supposed to write up about who are the potential enemies of Germany after World War I. So someone wrote about the socialists and the communists and et cetera. Somebody asked the captain, what about the Jews? The Jews? Hitler is always talking about the Jews. Let him do it. In this 1919 uh, report, which we have the original and is shown in our, our museum, he wrote pogroms, uh, which are basically the organized riots of the day. Pogroms against the Jews won't be sufficient. Uh, you need a governmental policy that eventually will lead to their total removal. Mm-hmm. He writes it. In 1919, of course, he was a nobody then. But that single letter, which is now now here, destroyed a cottage industry in Germany. Of his never signed anything, and it was uh, Heydrich and other people. Jews didn't matter to him. And what we learned from that, I think everyone should be reminded, is: look, freedom of speech is everything in our society. But we also have to remember that words have power and consequence. If you just stick to the first and turn it, you know, deaf to the re- the other part of it, you're leaving yourself open for uh, consequences that we can't even fathom. I'd like to uh, speak for or ask you a few questions about the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. You were recently appointed co-chair. Um, so what sort of a remit does that have and what it presumably in covers a lot of the all the religious faiths and it, it's in a major um organization and does great work so could you tell us a little bit about it right it, it's uh actually uh, quite unique i actually attended one of their hearings about four years five years ago and it was there i first was introduced to the suffering for example of christians in nigeria because people came from nigeria and were given a chance to you know, and that led to my visit there and co-authored a book, et cetera, et cetera, on, uh, on the issue. Um, what's unique about this commission is that it's an inside-outside. I'm usually a guy on the outside who's railing what's not being done on the inside. Uh, this uh, commission, which has a budget, I think, around $3.5 million a year and 20 staff, uh, and is designed to be uh, uh, a... Uh, uh, bipartisan uh, uh, entity. So we put out reports of, on about 30 countries. Those reports uh, go to the president, the secretary of state, and members of Congress. But there's also a pecking order for some of the worst uh, players, for example, Russia, China, where we they're graded, and they can be countries of particular concern something that nations don't want. And by the way, the State Department doesn't always listen mm. to what the commission is saying. For example, they removed Nigeria uh, from that lowest tier, even though, tragically, as we speak, Christians are being murdered all over that country, the richest, uh, largest, most powerful country you know, in, uh, in, in Africa. So, but, so in addition to that annual report, uh, we're now able to also put out um, sometimes almost daily releases on horrors that are taking place uh, uh, around the world. And 
I think most importantly is that we make country visits. So that will include Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, India has blocked any visits over the years from taking place. But uh, we're at an intake, if you will, of some of the worst uh, uh, things that are going on. And I think what's important also for the folks in the podcast to understand is that if you're an American and freedom of religion, which is a, a pillar of, of our values in history, means freedom to pray. Yeah. In Europe, generally, freedom of religion means freedom from religion. Because of the history of, of uh, you know, uh, European states, they were uh, controlled or influenced by particular churches. So there's been uh, historically a kind of huge backlash. Um, we're we're very we we're very close to uh, the folks in Bahrain. That's a small kingdom in the, in the Gulf. Uh, one of the signers now of the uh, Abraham Accords. But we we uh, long before the Accords, King Hamad put out a, uh, a statement, actually a declaration on religious tolerance. And the most important, he's made two incredibly powerful points and amazing for an Arab ruler. Number one, everyone can pray to God in the way they see fit. Everyone's right to do so. The other thing that he put in writing in plain English and Arabic is, you also have the right not to pray. And I think this is a key issue and it's something which for me is also central. Look, I, I'm a, a, an Orthodox rabbi. I don't rabbinate. I give out Laffy Taffy's in synagogue. You know, I, I, I deal in it on a, on a different uh, level. But I see as an American that freedom of religion is a core part of human rights. And it doesn't make a difference if you're religious or not yet religious, or you're, you're the head of the Atheist League. It is also a bellwether. It's a litmus test for any society to say, how do they treat their religious minorities? That's a good short form to look at the, the stability of a society, the fairness of, of how that society operates. And uh, so as I see the uh, participating in this commission yes if we can move saudi arabia to do more uh you know to uh, uh not so be monolithic in its theological approaches and not to export what has been exporting for uh for decades in terms of a of a of a radical theology that's not only good news for religious people good news for the kinds of values that we need to bring down the global temperature, not climate-wise, but the global temperature that seems to be bringing us every day to more conflict, deeper conflict, more innocents being killed. So for better or for worse, I think the, uh, the, the, uh, how religious minorities are treated in our country as well, by the way, uh, is, uh, it gives you a, a pretty quick read on the overall health of that society. Speaking of back here in America, you, you look at all the attacks on synagogues over the past few years, and indeed other religious houses of worship. I, I saw a number of several hundred attacks on Catholic churches since 2020, and they surged for some reason. I guess we can easily guess after the um, Roe v. Wade being repealed 
they were linked together. Um, where do you see overall religious freedom? What, what state are we in? What direction is it going in? Well, overall, I have to say we're not in very good shape. And it's kind of uh, ironic to point where things uh, seem to be improving. The countries that signed the Abraham Accords and those that are considering joining, uh, it's, uh, I think I've lived long enough to say, well, uh, you know, some of the Muslim countries are beginning to show the way by uh, beginning to show some respect and protection under the law for uh, religious minorities within their faith, but also for other religions. Overall, however, since I joined the commission, the intake is unbelievable because when you talk about Bangladesh, which is a Muslim country, and uh, the attacks on, uh, on Hindus and Buddhists, you talk about Myanmar, which used to be Burma, you have Buddhists who are, you know, what they've done to the Rohingya. You go to China, not only what's uh, happened to the Uyghurs, but the closing and destruction of churches. Uh, so uh, you can sort of go across. It's not like one religion leads the league. It's when you have a particular religion that's embedded within the power structure or manipulated uh, in a place, for example, like, say, Malaysia. It's weaponized in order to push a certain political goal uh, or a certain direction for society. Um you know, it, I hate to say it, but our works uh, cut out with about, I think, 27 countries worldwide. Um, and um, the, the sad fact is, I know that when we go to these different countries, and we'll be going to a, a number of them, the first question out of, out of everyone, journalists and heads of state and uh, religious leaders, like, what's going on with America? Mm. Why is that all that hate? Why are houses of worship being... You know, it's a fair question. It's not part of our technical purview, but believe me, in terms of the eight commissioners who were in there, in our other lives, these are issues that profoundly concern us. And I would just say, I know that uh, we started this conversation about everything being weaponized. You know, not everything that the Trump administration did was such a bad thing. I think the idea that Secretary of State Pompeo brought the issue of religious minorities to the fore was a good thing, brought the idea that at least the goal that's set out in our constitution, in, in our core history, about that freedom of religion is right there with freedom of speech, with freedom of assembly, that, that's an American core value that is really the basis of a commission like ours. That needs to be celebrated by all administrations, whether you're left, right, or center. And um, I, I think we're not in the stature in the world and weakens our uh, opportunity to impact on others. Any thoughts on the terrible tragedy in the Ukraine invaded by Russia? And on the one hand, you have Putin um, claiming to be out there defending democracy and fighting against what he sees as the moral corruption of the decadent West. Um, there's a lot of ironies there and shocking tragedies. Does freedom of religion enter into that whole debate? It's a, it, it's a really very perceptive question. Look, if you want to talk about fake news, the Soviet Union invented fake news before there was an internet. 
uh, before there were even fax machines. So the idea of weaponizing ideas and journalism and event manipulating events uh, echoes way back to to their revolutionary times of uh, over a hundred years ago. Um, with with Putin years ago, I made my first visit to the Soviet Union, and then lived long enough to see the end of the communist era without being fired and people having the freedom to move around. Uh, that that a wonderful era itself may be now coming uh, to an end. And when you tell, you know, the Soviet Union, Russians, they lost 20 million dead in the fight to defeat Hitler during World War II. Uh, that's a staggering uh, figure. They, over the decades, have correctly taken a lot of credit for the defeat of Nazism. So when you conjure up the term Nazism, in terms of your neighbor is really uh, a Nazi threat, believe it or not, that still resonates, especially since all uh, sources of information, including online and social media, are pretty much controlled now, again, you know, by the state or, or its surrogates. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine is a war crime. There have been crimes against humanity that have been uh, perpetrated. Uh, we just put out, I put my name to a tweet not 24 hours ago, uh, urging that Russia be put on, on the bottom list. Uh, an important Wall Street Journal article a few days ago, horrifying of what happened to priests when Russian soldiers came in, to, they were uh, tortured, raped, and sometimes, you know, shot, shot dead and left in the streets for, for days. So, uh, it, it's a horrific time for the Jewish people. Uh, it's also a multi-layered disaster because I think we're seeing uh, uh, pretty much a destruction of the Jewish community in the Ukraine, probably the exodus of many of the remaining Jewish people living in Russia because no one knows what the day after Putin will be for Russia. And the other point that cannot leave out is that tragically, the top leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church were all in from day one in terms of the invasion, where they, I guess, could or should have been remained neutral or maybe allowed uh, dissident voices to be heard. Absolutely in lockstep with Putin. And uh, that also means long range, the implication for the average younger Russian when they finally learn the full truth. Uh, unfortunately, you have right there the spiritual leadership, uh, if you will, the moral leadership of a nation uh, in total embrace with Putin's vision and, and actions. Yeah, that's surprised a lot of people, and, and they, they have a difficult time understanding how the head of the Russian Orthodox Church could be in cahoots, if you will, with Putin. And you referenced there, of course, that recent article worth reading on the Wall Street Journal about priests being brutalized by um, the Russian invaders. And the significance of, of Ukraine is that Putin has to be defeated, correct? And it's important for the West to be behind the Ukrainians in this fight? It's a really good question uh, because, yeah, when you say he needs to be defeated, uh, obviously he needs the a very hefty price to pay uh, for the miscalculation that led to the invasion. But um, I, I also, you know, 
shudder about what is the future for Ukraine? The defeat of Putin might leave a Ukraine totally shattered. I think we already have 15 million displaced Ukrainians. So the numbers are staggering. Um, and as much as we want to, you know, see individuals to be held accountable for their crimes against humanity and war crimes, that's part of what the Wiesel Center is. I think first and foremost, we still have to pray for uh, the peace, meaning an exit strategy that will give Ukrainian people a chance to rehabilitate their own country at all. Uh, and I, I've met both personally and uh, on Zoom with some of the Ukrainian diplomats and the staff of Zelensky. And, and you can just tell, besides the incredible pressure of hundreds of days of this kind of stuff, uh, we met a few weeks ago with, uh, for the third time with Pope Francis. Pope Francis is begging, but he feels that he has that would bring an end, to, uh, you know, an end to the to the suffering. Patient has been forthcoming yet, and I wouldn't hold my breath if I was the Pope. I want to finish up on interreligious dialogue and cooperation between different religious groups. Where is that in America? Is there uh, are, are the group do groups work together? Right. First of all, I think you can overestimate the power of sports, the states, and globally, especially through football, uh, to influence the younger generation. You know whether they're really equipped or not to be those kind of role models. They are. So that that's an overarching thing. Just uh, I think yes that most uh, in the United States most uh, religious uh, leaders understand that going forward uh, you need to have communications uh, with other religions and you need to speak out. I mean, if a Baha'i uh, a temple is is, uh, is desecrated, you you go to synagogue, you better speak out. You better be there for them because. It's clear we're all in the same boat. If we don't uh, act on that, we we sink. But I also think one other important thing has taken place and is evolving since I was a kid growing up in, in New York. And that is that the way I look at things, I'm less concerned with interfaith. I look at it as multi-faith, which means the following. I have no interest in converting anybody to Judaism. I, I, what I'm looking for, if you will, are the normals people who, who get it and pray in their own fashion to God, to uh, not to check your beliefs at the door, but be who you are, and then find commonality of purpose. So if it's working together to get gloves uh, and masks during uh, COVID to, you know, community uh, dealing with the with the so far, insoluble, uh, homeless. We have to feed people who don't have the food, etc. These are the basics that that uh, the Hebrew prophets and the New Testament and talk about of basically caring for our neighbor, showing that uh, we have some sense of mutual respect. That is really the baseline. And what I discovered when I was growing up in New York, the, even the idea that. Uh, a Jew who was wearing a, a yarmulke would be on TV was like unheard of. And yet today, all over the world, I can say this in personal experience. When I come into uh, uh, Al-Azhar office, it's the number one place in 
in, in Egypt, right, to meet with the Grand Mufti of Cairo or in Indonesia with President White, they're more at ease seeing the yarmulke on my head. It doesn't mean we're going to be friends, but it's short form saying, ah, here's someone, I pray five times a day, this guy prays three. I, I have halal, almost like with and trying to homogenize every bar, bring your concerns to the table, your neighbor, when they need your help. Yeah, we, we, shouldn't, we, we shouldn't worry about homogenizing uh, all religions uh, to fit into, you know, uh, easy sound bites. Yeah. Everyone should come to the table proud with their ideas, their uh, game plan and uh, values about how they reach out to God, treat their fellow man, create the, the face-to-face relationships, not only virtual online, but face-to-face. And most importantly, God forbid when there's a hate crime or there's a crisis in society, to roll up your sleeves and help your neighbor, even though you may not have been hurt. But the good Lord's told us that we'll be repaid, uh, you know, tenfold in, in so many different ways. And we as faith leaders, bottom line right now is we're not going to get moral leadership from Washington. Yeah. It's time for people in the communities not to even look there for it, but just to begin to live it again. When we do that, we'll have a better society and then democracy will be stronger again. Rabbi Cooper, thank you for this fascinating and thoughtful interview. It's my honor. Good to meet you, sir. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.